We want to deal with holiness this morning. A few people are coming in, so uh, we may give them just a minute or two to find us, and then we're going to begin right away. A little bit about myself. My name is Alan Parker. I am a professor at Southern Adventist University. Anyone here from Southern? Okay, a few. And uh, I teach in the School of Religion there. Before that, I was the Vice President of Evangelism at Amazing Facts. And uh, it's, uh, it's great to see a number of students around here and people who've worked at Amazing Facts. <laughs> and so uh, it's really good to, to be with you. All right. Father, we pray that you'll be with us now as we talk about this important topic of holiness. You know that in many of our lives, there's that desperate cry for you to make yourself known. We ask now that in this time, you connect us with you. That you help us to see that an intimacy with you is far beyond anything the world can give us. Lord, right now, there are some of us struggling with deep sins in our lives. Things we would admit to nobody else. But here, we take that moment of vulnerability to confess our sinfulness. And to pray that you make a change. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What we're going to be dealing with this morning is the sanctified life. But instead of doing a regular, here are five or six ways to become holy, I want to deal with some of the foundational principles that make up holiness. And in order to begin, I think it would be good for us to just sing a song to put us in the right frame of reference. And so if you'd like to join me in singing, Lord, make me a sanctuary. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. Let's do it together. And uh, because my voice is still adjusting from Tennessee, I need some help. All right, let's begin. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, with thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary. It seems like holiness is getting a bad rap, right? I mean, you go around, you tell people, you know, I've decided to become holy. <laughs> what do they immediately think of? You mean holier than thou? You mean you want to be somebody special that no one else is? And it looks like holiness is getting a bad rap. Some people even say it's unnecessary. We don't need any of that holiness stuff anymore. It's just kind of getting in the way of our regular life. When people start talking about being holy, it just makes me feel guilty. And I don't want to feel guilty. And so some ways we're just getting rid of holiness because at the heart of it, we're trying to get rid of sin. So we have three options, I believe, in front of us. The one is to be prudes. You know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a person who keeps my moral standards, and it just seems like they're outdated, but I'm going to hold on to them. Then the other option is to be more permissive, to go with the anything goes culture, refuse to acknowledge sin, to say, you know, I, th there's no problem here. Do what you like. God loves you anyway. You can sin and God will still love you and take you into heaven. And then there's a third option that I obviously want us to call us to today, and that is to become pure. How many of you would like to become pure today? To live out that radical kind of life that God demanded. I think we have fallen for a lie. Amen? We have fallen for a lie that says you can do what you like, 
and it doesn't matter. God wants us to live on a different level. Something has happened in our society. I remember reading the story of a man who had robbed a, a grocery store or something like that in New York and the owner of the grocery store had shot the man in the leg as he was in the middle of the robbery. And then this man, the robber, decided to take the grocery owner to court about the pain and suffering he was going through because he was shot in the leg. And he won. He was paid compensation. He won because he was now lame in the leg. Well, a few months later, he was actually caught in a wheelchair trying to rob another store. <laughs> so here is this guy who feels like he is owed something by society. His argument was that if society was not so cruel to me, I would not have had to steal. Another uh, situation occurred, uh, you may have heard of this, of a person who had committed murder. And when he was on trial, one of the factors in his case was that he said he had eaten too much of Hostess Twinkies and it had made him irrational. So next time you eat Hostess Twinkies, remember what this can do. And part of his sentence was commuted because of the Hostess Twinkies argument. It's not really my fault. I just had too many Hostess Twinkies. What's happening in society today is that we have minimized sin. We are getting rid of sin because it is uncomfortable for us. And we have said that we are victims. Do we hear about sin anymore? Notice what Carl Menninger says. It was a word once in everyone's mind, but now really, if ever, is heard. Does that mean that no sin is involved in all our troubles? Sin with an I in the middle? Is no one any longer guilty of anything? Guilty perhaps of a sin that could be repented and repaired or atoned for? Is it only that someone may be stupid or sick or criminal or asleep? Anxiety, yes, and depression we all acknowledge, and even some vague guilt feelings. But has no one committed any sins? It used to be that in Adventist pulpits you would hear a lot about sin, right? You would hear sermons that kind of hit home. But now it's, it's kind of Reader's Digest, whiffly waffly, you know, you, you get up there, it's five ways to love your spouse, and it's, it's all very nice. What was the one sermon I heard? The lettuce garden, let us be kind, let us be gentle. It was all of these nice phrases, but there was nothing dealing with sin. You listen to the popular televangelists on TV today, and you, I'm not talking about Adventist evangelists, I'm talking about the general evangelists out there. And they're preaching to the tens of thousands. But you hardly ever hear them dealing with sin. What has gone wrong? Is no one guilty of sin anymore? So what I want to do is call us back to purity. I want us to call us to a higher standard because I believe that God has not given us a ministry on this earth just to go with the flow. God has called us out of the flow to become His people, His holy people. He has called us a holy nation, called out of darkness into His marvelous light. We should be living differently. And yet, in the societal studies that have been done of Adventism, they find that Adventism looks pretty much like the rest of society, except that we go to church on a different day. There is almost no difference in the way we dress, in the way we act, in the way we talk, in the movies we listen to. The line of distinction between the sacred and the secular has been broken down. Amen? And we need to make a change. We need to make a change. Now, why do we need holiness? Well, firstly, it's just a biblical requirement. 
It says, follow peace with all men and holiness without which, what? No man shall see the Lord. You can't see God without holiness. Does that make sense? How could a holy God be with an unholy people? Now we're going to come to that contradiction in just a moment here, but this is what the Bible asks us. It also says, having therefore these promises, it's speaking of, of the promise of God being with us, Daily beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit and do what? Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. If we truly believe that God is working our lives, we will perfect holiness. Now, this is easier said than done. How many of you have tried to live a holy life and come up short? Is there anyone who has not come up short? Because then we just want to deal with the sin of pride. <laughs> So we, we have all come short of the glory of God. Amen? So what are we going to do? We're sinners in the hands of a holy God. How are we going to handle this? What is next? So why do we need holiness? Here's a, a second point. Not only is it a biblical requirement, but I believe it is God's desire for His last day generation. Would you agree? In a special way, at the end of time, as the great controversy wraps up, God is wanting to do something special with His last day people. So I want to do a little Bible study. Are you, are you ready for this? Can we do a little Bible study on the seal of God? Now you're going to say, well, what does the seal of God have to do with holiness? Well, just hang in there, and we're going to see how it comes together. Does anyone know where the seal of God is found? It's in the book of Revelation. You have a couple of places, but I'm going to go to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, and I believe it is verse 3. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 3. And it says, Saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God. Where? In their foreheads. All right, so everyone follow me. The seal of God is placed where? In their foreheads. So we know what the seal of God is if, if, we, uh, if we read into it from Spirit of Prophecy. It is a settling into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, so they cannot be moved. But I want us to go a little deeper about what the settling is. Why is it that the seal of God is in the forehead? Now there's an obvious reason. What does the forehead represent? The mind, right? The forehead represents the mind, the brain that you think with. This is the place where we make decisions or choices. But I've found whenever something occurs in the book of Revelation, it often has a correlation in the Old Testament. Remember, the Old Testament is the key to unlock the book of Revelation. So when I see that there is something on the forehead, immediately I'm going to go back to the Old Testament and I discover several things that are on the forehead. I want to particularly deal with one of them. What is on the forehead in the Old Testament? Anyone guess what they might be? Remember God's law, the phylacteries? They, they, you, you had them on the hand, you had them on the forehead. There's something else, and this was kind of exciting to me, something that was placed on the priest's head. And of course now we are all priests, part of the priesthood of God. So this is something that is therefore placed on our heads. We find this special thing occurs all the way back, and we go back to... Exodus 39, verse 30. Exodus chapter 39, verse 30. You find it in a couple of places in Exodus. But there's something that is placed on the priest's forehead that is really powerful, and that connects with the book of Revelation. Exodus chapter 39 
and verse 30, and this is what it says. And they made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold. So where does a crown go? On your head. <laughs> All right. And then wrote on it a writing like to the engravings of a signet. And the writing said, holiness to the Lord. Now this is, this is important. You see, what you have when you have the mark of the beast and the seal of God is you have a correlation to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, who received a mark? Cain. Cain received a mark. Where? On his hand. He receives a mark on his hand. And so that represents the actions that he has taken against God. Now the priest, he receives what on his head? A signet or a seal, in a sense, that says holiness to the Lord. Now we want to examine what this holiness means. Because I believe that at the end of time, the seal of God is going to be represented how God writes His name upon our foreheads. Would you agree with that? And what is this name? It has to do with holiness. Now what does holiness to the Lord mean? Well, you could think of it several things. Holiness should be given to the Lord. But another way says holiness belongs to the Lord. Now I want you to follow this with me. Because if we are not careful, we will see the seal of God. What do most Adventists say the seal of God is? The Sabbath. But if you're not careful, that's only half the story. Now take a look here. Because the seal of God will only be placed upon the foreheads of those who sigh and cry for the abominations done in the land. This is all from uh, Christian experiences and testimonies of Ellen White. Not one of us will ever receive the seal of God while our characters have one spot or stain upon them. Woo! Are you ready to be sealed? Whew. Take a look at this one. The seal of God will never be placed upon the forehead of an impure man or woman. Holiness is an essential requirement for the seal of God. You see, this sign of holiness to the Lord indicated that the priest was especially set apart for God. The biblical word for holiness means to be set, apart, set aside for a sacred purpose. Everyone follow that? To be set aside for a sacred purpose. The priest was set aside for a sacred purpose. He was pure, and therefore he could have the sign signet upon him, holiness to the Lord. In our lives, if we are not holy, if we are not pure, we are eradicating ourselves from being sealed with the, spirit, with, the, with the holiness of God, the seal of God. So how does this work? There's a critical choice. The mark of the beast where by our hands we indicate by our actions that we have given ourselves over to the devil or the seal of God that indicates we have holiness to the, to the Lord. You might almost say, I am holy His. Holiness is being holy His, and we'll examine that later on. So what is holiness? Holiness, I believe, is not ethical morality. It's not going, you know, yesterday I was so good, I never even had a piece of chocolate. <laughs> it's not saying, you know, I, I have done the right thing yesterday. I went and I gave $50 to a charity down the road, and I'm so glad because now I'm holy. Is this really holiness? Is holiness simply the avoidance of sin? I, I did not go on the internet yesterday. I avoided the internet, therefore I'm holy. Is holiness about perfection? You know, uh, I, I'm almost perfect now. I'm, I'm just kind of working on my pride and then I'll be done. So what we find in the Bible is that holiness is actually something we don't have. Holiness belongs to God. Now take a look at some of these texts. Exodus chapter 15 verse 11. You don't mind if we use the Bibles here. Yeah, it did say a biblical guide to holiness. 
So let's take a look. Exodus chapter 15 and verse 11. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Is there anyone like our holy God? But you know what we've done? We've made God a big buddy. You know what I'm talking about? You know, God is just a big, hey, how's the old man up in heaven kind of thing. You chatted to the old man lately? You know, this is not who God is. God is holy. We have lost a sense of God's holiness. And until we recover that, we are not going to be challenged to transform. Does that make sense? So we need to have this holiness of God that goes above and beyond. How many of you have felt a diminishing of God's holiness in the last few years? That, that people no longer put God high and lifted up. Instead, He's brought down. And so we go to Revelation 15, verse 4, back to Revelation. Notice how it refers to God and His holiness. Revelation 15, verse 4, Who shall not fear Thee, O Lord, and glorify Thy name? For Thou only art... Holy. No one else has holiness except God. And so you can go through Isaiah chapter 6 verse 3 where Isaiah has a vision of God high and lifted up and the angels cry out, Holy, holy, holy. Again, the same repetition of that phrase. Holy, holy, holy occurs in the book of Revelation. Old Testament and Revelation come together. God is holy. He is high and lifted up. You know, when people came into the sight of a holy God, what often happened to them in the Old Testament? They fell down. You know, they said, I can't do this. Now, I'm not saying we should fall down in church. <laughs> you know, that's a different kind of movement. But what I am saying is that something needs to happen inside. We do not bow down in our hearts to God because we've diminished who He is. Now, the question is, if holiness belongs to God, how do we get it, right? I mean, you, you're going to go up to God and say, hey, I'd like uh, some of your holiness. Uh, what's it, what's it going to cost? You're going to pay God off for it? Or are you going to go to God and say, you know, I, I've been pretty good lately. You know, I, I even called my mother the other day and uh, I, I refused to go out with that girl who pestered me. I've been pretty good. And so if I've been so good at all of this, then surely I'm going to be holy. How do we get this holiness? How does it go from God to us? What's the process? Well, I want us to go back to our, our study here. And let's think about what makes something holy. Now, if you go to Moses and the burning bush, there he is. Moses is walking along, and suddenly he sees a burning bush. Now, what happens next? A voice speaks to him out of the bush. Well, that would be scary, um, and pretty soon we won't hear any more bushes speaking. But this voice speaks to him out of a bush. I was just one keep keeping you awake there. A voice speaks to him out of this bush and says, Take off your shoes because you are on holy ground. Now what makes that ground holy? Did the next day when Moses walked by, did he go, oh, That ground's holy. Was it holy the next day? No, what made it holy? God's presence. Everyone follow me? It was the presence of God that made the ground holy. It was the presence of God that transformed ordinary dirt into the footstool of His throne room. It was the, tr the presence of God that took an ordinary bush and made it burn with a flame of God's holiness. It was the presence of God that took an ordinary wilderness experience and transformed it into an encounter with God. 
In the same way, in our lives, our lives are ordinary. We are sinners. We are, we are weighed down with guilt and everything else. But when God's presence comes in, it has a transforming experience. Can you say amen? amen. When God steps into your ordinary life, extraordinary things happen. Isn't that what happened with Moses? Here he is, an, an ordinary guy, stammering, uh, a shepherd for 40 years, and yet God's presence comes in and it transforms Moses. He has a stick in his hand, an ordinary stick, but when God's presence takes hold of that stick, miracles happen. In the same way, you may look at your life and go, man, my life's a mess. I, I can't see how God could give any holiness here. But when God's presence enters in, something happens. Now take a look at the sanctuary. What was the sanctuary? Exodus 25 verse 8 describes God's purpose for His sanctuary. He said, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. What was the purpose of the sanctuary? To have God's presence with His people. Does that make sense? And so what is the sanctuary called? You have the holy place and the most holy place. What made that the holy place? What made it the most holy place? What, what made that happen? God's holiness, right? It was God's holiness in the holy place, God's holiness in the most holy place that made it holy. And the more of God's presence, the holier the place got. You follow the line of reasoning here? So what we need to take a look at here is how does this connect with the seal of God? Because we find that in Exodus 20 verse 8, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. How do we keep the Sabbath day holy? Oh, don't eat anything like that. Don't watch the... Don't put your feet in the water. Is that how we keep the Sabbath holy? How do we keep the Sabbath holy? By experiencing God's presence in the day. By experiencing God's presence in the day. Genesis 2 verse 3 says that God on the Sabbath blessed the day and sanctified it because He rested. Now let's just break that down. God blessed the day. How did He bless the day? When I'm doing evangelism, what I like to do is have some cups of water and I have one cup of juice. And I'm trying to show them the, the specialness of the Sabbath day. So I have six cups of water and I go through one by one. I say, I now make this cup of water special. And I drink it and I say, man, this is terrible municipal juice. I mean water. It's just terrible. Any of you tried the hotel water here? You know the experience. So then I go to the second one, and the third one, and the fourth one. I tell each time, I am going to, to make this special. And it's not. Eventually I get down to number seven. Now I do this towards the end of my message, because after having all of that water, it's good that you do it at the end of your message. So I get down towards the end, and here is number seven. And number seven, I have orange juice in it. And I lift up that cup with orange juice in it. And I say, now, what's different about this? The blessing has been supplied. Does that make sense? The blessing has been supplied. What is the blessing that God has supplied to the Sabbath day? It is that He has sanctified it. He has made it holy. How does He make it holy? With His presence. It is God's presence in my life that makes me holy. Is this beginning to make sense? As God steps into my life, as He steps into the Sabbath, He makes it holy because He rested. Now, why did God rest? Was He tired? Man, you know, that was hard work bringing the worlds into existence. I had to like speak and they would appear. Was He tired? No, He wasn't tired. The reason why He rested was because He wanted to enter into a relationship with us. 
The reason why God rested wasn't because he had had such a hard day's work. It was because he wanted to set aside time to be in a relationship with his creation. God was giving us the blessing of Himself and a relationship with Him. And we find that this is the purpose of the Sabbath. Ezekiel 20 verses 12 and 20 says that the Sabbath is a sign that I am the Lord that sanctifies you. It's a sign of what? A sign of? Sanctification. What is another word for sanctification? Holiness. It is a sign of holiness. How is it a sign of holiness? Because on the Sabbath, as we enter into God's relationship, into God's rest, His relationship with us transforms our lives and makes them holy. That's why when we have little kids and we're like, how do we get our little kids to enjoy the Sabbath? So Friday evening is bubble bath time. Now I know for those of you who don't remember this, you may have had the same experience. So we do bubble baths, and, as, and it's kind of our symbolism. You know, we pour that bubble bath in, and we make these frothy bubbles because we're trying to show them that there is a specialness added to this day. You following me? A specialness that adds to it. So why is the Sabbath so important for holiness? Because it is on this day that God especially gives us the blessing of His presence. The Sabbath is a sign. It is the seal of God. Because it indicates our relationship with God. Are you following me? Now, what does that relationship do? And that's what we're going to come to in a moment. First, notice that there are three kinds of holiness. There is a holiness of place, like the sanctuary. There is a holiness of time. That is a holiness where God enters into special time with us. But what do you think is the third kind of holiness? A holiness... Of people. So, yeah, you have God enters into, He gives His presence into a place, the sanctuary. He gives His presence on a day which is not limited by a place, but He wants to go any further and give Himself to His people. Notice how these three are often connected. If you want the holiness chapter in the Bible, you have to go to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19 is the holiness chapter of the Old Testament. So go with me there to Leviticus chapter 19, and let's take a look. Let's take a look at what it says here. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, You shall be holy. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am holy. Notice this, a holy God, a holy people. You shall fear everyone, his mother and his father, and keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Notice how he connects holiness with keeping the Sabbath. But he goes on to show, and you can kind of read it through this whole chapter, that holiness results in a love relationship with everyone. Did you get that? Holiness results in a love relationship with everyone. Notice this, verse 18. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Why? Because I am the Lord. Here's where Jesus gets the command to love your neighbor as yourself. It's from the holiness chapter of the Old Testament. And he shows us what holiness is. Holiness is about relationships with other people. And then he goes on to mention again down in verse 30, and you can see how it's connected. Ye shall keep my Sabbaths, 
and reverence my sanctuary, for I am the Lord. In other words, these three elements are all connected. A holy God demands a holy place, demands a holy time, demands a holy people. What is this holiness? Dramatic effect, not planful. What is this holiness? It is when God enters into a relationship with us. And that relationship starts transforming our relationships with others. Everyone follow this? Now I know it's, it's been a journey and we're going to bring it all together. Now what happens in the New Testament? In the Old Testament, the priests had holiness to the Lord written on them. But what do we believe happens in the New Testament? There is a priesthood of... Help me out, Chad. There is a priesthood of all believers, right? A priesthood of believers. So what happens in the New Testament? How do we get this holiness? Now, there are three members of the Godhead. Who are they? God the Father, God the Son, and God the what spirit? The Holy Spirit. So here's what happened. There is one member of the Godhead who particularly has the name holy attached to him. And in the New Testament, this holiness becomes ours because of what happens. Something happens in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19. This holiness becomes ours through the Holy Spirit. Something happens. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, you know it now. Know you not that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You become the new place where the Holy Spirit dwells. You become the place where God brings Himself in, where His relationship begins to transform your life. And so we become temples, holy places inhabited by the Holy Spirit. Now when the Holy Spirit comes in, something will happen to us. Ephesians 4 verse 30, something happens to us when the Holy Spirit comes in. He becomes a guarantee that does what? Someone find it? Ephesians 4 verse 30 and 31. What happens? He becomes a guarantee, a deposit in our hearts. And what does that happen? He seals us to the day of redemption. So here's what the seal is, folks. The seal is when God imprints His holiness upon my heart by the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life. You get that? So at the end of time, the Sabbath is merely a sign of that holiness of the Holy Spirit abiding in my heart. On the Sabbath, I experience God's special blessings. I experience that time when God enters into a relationship with me. But that is simply a sign of my entire life that is given over to the Holy Spirit as He comes in and He seals me by making me like Himself. I cannot afford to be sealed if there is still impurity in my life. I cannot afford to be sealed if I'm still holding on onto stuff. Does this make sense? So the Holy Spirit comes in with His mega cleaning crew. He comes in. He says, knock, knock, knock. I'd like to go into this room. Uh, no, thank you. This room's private. You can go to any other room in the house, but this room is mine. You don't understand. I am going to vacuum up all that filth. I'm going to come in and I'm going to open those rooms and clean up. And if you want to be sealed, a sealing is a settling into the truth. It is God removing the stuff from your life that prevents a total relationship with Him. Now, we've got to deal with how this works. 
Because I believe what I've been saying here, holiness is a byproduct of a relationship. You probably heard the story of that woman who was uh, married to a guy who told her everything she had to do. It's like, all right, today you need to wash the clothes, you need to iron them, you need to make the food, you need to dust, you need to take the garbage out. She had these lists from him. And she went through this whole experience where it's like, oh man, I, I, every day is a burden. Now praise the Lord, the guy died. And she ended up marrying another fellow who was wonderful. And, and it was just a beautiful relationship. It was just incredible. And one day she's up in the attic and she's opening up her trunks of different things up there. And she finds one of these lists that her previous husband had made out. What happens inside of her? There's anger. There's, there's bitterness. There's resentment. But then she starts going down through the list, you know, wash the clothes, iron them, take the garbage out, do the dishes. And as she goes down through the list, she realizes, I'm doing all of those things for my current husband. What made the difference? Love. Because she was in a love relationship, she delighted to do these things. But while she was constrained by them, while they were a burden on her, something was going wrong. So I, I want to deal with that question because I believe it's at the heart of why we struggle with holiness. Moralism does not produce holiness. What would Jesus do does not produce holiness. Any of you tried what would Jesus do? You know, the little wristband, you know, what would Jesus do? And we walk around, you know, and then you get into temptation. That thing means nothing. That little band, I mean, you look at it and go, throw it away. All right. So isn't that the case? I've got to make sure I don't throw my microphones away. All right. So what happens is, that we don't, we don't do holiness like this. There's a fundamental problem. Then some of us tell ourselves that it really doesn't matter if you sin because God loves you enough to save you anyway. Does that produce holiness? No. So none of these methods work. Sometimes we try and define holiness by rules. Bless me, Father, for I've sinned. I've committed adultery with every woman in the office, says the cartoon. The priest says, yes, my son. I murdered a half a dozen guys and stole their wallets. Yes, go on, my son. I embezzled a million bucks and blew it all on Vegas. Is there anything else, my son? Um, I knelt during Mass. What? Did I hear you correctly? You're going to go to hell for that. I mean, can we make these arbitrary definitions of holiness? You know, is this how it works? And I've heard this sometimes. You know, you can keep the Sabbath holy if you put your feet in the water, but it doesn't go above your knees. You know what I'm talking about? You can keep the Sabbath holy if you go out in nature. It doesn't matter what you talk about as long as you're out in nature, right? You're keeping the Sabbath holy. Is holiness a bunch of rules that we have to keep? If so, it seems to become a terrible yoke. Uh, in this book, The Spirit of Disciplines, Darius Willard says that Christ speaks about the easy yoke. He says, but the problem is, is that we feel burdened by the requirements of spirituality. And he asks the question, why is this when Jesus promised that the yoke would be easy and the burden would be light? How many of you have found sometimes that religion is a burden? Come and be honest. Religion can be a burden. Absolutely. And as the more I started looking into this, the more it began to hit in my head. Holiness was something that I was working at instead of coming out of a byproduct of a relationship. Now, he gives a great illustration of a baseball player. He says, now, if you want to be a baseball player, let's say you're standing out there getting ready to hit the ball, and you've never played baseball before, but you try and imitate 
the baseball player, the way he stands there, so you stand on the mound. I've, I haven't played baseball either. I play cricket. But is this the right way? Does this Anyway, something like this, all right? So you try and imitate it, and you're going to try and swing at that shot just the way the professional baseball player does. But then out walks onto the field a professional pitcher. Do you have any chance? Not at all, right? Why not? I mean, you're standing the right way. You're ready to do the right thing, but why can't you do it? Because you don't have a lifetime of living the professional game. Does this make sense? You can't learn how to be a professional overnight. It's a process that comes from a discipline. Is, are you following the, the lines here? Now, I'm going to back off and critique this a little bit in just a moment, but I want you to get the central point that what happens with the what would Jesus do theology is that you think in the moment you can make the right decision. And that's totally false. Because in the moment, you can't make the right decision even if you know what it is. How many of you have experienced that? You know the good you ought to do, but you don't do it. Does that sound like a Bible text? And so we are standing in a situation, God, I do not want to go on that internet site. I do not want to go on that internet site. I'm not going to go on that internet site. Ooh. Any of you experienced that? You, you're going through, I'm not going to eat that chocolate cake. I know that I will not. What would Jesus do? Jesus would not eat that chocolate cake. He would not go near that chocolate cake. Mm, but it tastes real good. So we are in a situation where we can't live holiness by this once, once a day or once a month kind of decision making, ethical decision making. Instead, what Dallas Willard says, it should be a way of life that is ingrained so that doing the right thing comes naturally. If we want to be holy like Jesus was, then what we need to do is follow the life of Christ. It was His entire life of spirituality that enabled Him to be loving and principled under pressure. Does that make sense? When you live your entire life the way Christ lived it. So at first, I looked at it and I said, all right, how do I live my life the way Christ lived it? Yeah, Christ prayed all night. So any of you done this? You pray all night. And the next day you have a headache and you still have a problem. All right? So I, I, then I said, okay, I'm going to fast. You remember the first time you fasted? It was miserable. Let's be honest. You know, you, you, never mind praying. You could think about nothing other than food. And yet I thought, this is the way to find holiness. One guy, Simon uh, Stylites, he wanted to find holiness. So what he did is he put himself up on the top of this column. Uh, for years, I forget, like 30 years, they used to kind of send him food up there. And then some worms and maggots kind of crawled up there. And he used to hold out his hands and let the worms kind of eat into his flesh and say, Worms and maggots, I am your food. Because he thought that if I just punish myself this way, if I just isolate myself, I'll become holy. Is that a good way to become holy? Uh, hopefully none of you have tried this. All right. So this would not be a great way. We try and do it through these moral actions. And I started looking at it. All the things that I was trying to do to become holy, they were what the Pharisees were doing. Discipline, prayer, fasting, Sabbath, keeping, tithing, studying the Word. Did the Pharisees know the Word of God? Yes. Striving for godliness. And I recognize that Jesus seemed to have the same things. A life of prayer. He had purposeful fasting. He had, he had Sabbaths. But there was something different in the way Jesus did these. His was not just discipline, prayer. It was a life of prayer. His was not just fasting, it was purposeful fasting. 
His was not just Sabbath keeping, but he had intentional Sabbaths for doing God's will. His was not just tithing, but a life of sacrificial giving. He didn't just study the word, he lived the word. He didn't just strive for godliness, godliness flowed out of him. There was a fundamental difference between the Pharisees and Jesus. You follow that? And when I looked at the way I was trying to go about holiness, I recognized that I was like the Pharisees and not like Jesus. So holiness had become a burden. Look at the results here. I was just like the Pharisees. Religion was a tedious duty. I have got to read my Bible in the morning no matter what. So I'm going to get up and I'm going to pray. And I'm going to study my Bible. I'm going to read those five chapters I promised to read in my Bible reading plan. Even if it kills me. <laughs> and suddenly the life and joy was gone out of my holiness experience. I wasn't getting the seal of God. I was getting this works-based religion that sounded more like Cain than like Abel. You follow me? And so I, choking on requirements, concerned with others' impressions. I just want to let everybody know that I did some witnessing this week. And as I was on a plane over, this happened to me. Any of you shared those kind of experiences already? And then you kind of look at the other person like, hey, am I holy or what? <laughs> By the way, I did witness once on, on the plane, and, and there is value to witnessing. I don't want to knock it, but what's your motivation? I was witnessing once to this guy on the plane, and he was totally not into what I was saying. And so, so you know, I just kind of backed off, and, and uh, he said, so, you know, what do you do anyway? I said, well, I'm kind of like an evangelist and a teacher of religion. The guy almost flew out the window. <laughs> and, but then we got talking, and he started to open up. And at the end, he said, you know... I think I'm going to give that God thing a try. And he, he uh, left the plane. I was with my kids. It was very busy. And he slipped something into my hand as, as he left. And I thought it was maybe as a thank you note or something from him. But then after we got off the plane, I opened up my hand and there was a $100 bill. See, so witnessing pays. <laughs> so... The challenge here is that many of us do do these things for a profit. You, you follow me? That holiness is so that God can give us certain things. It's so that we can, we can get these benefits. So what was different about Jesus' life? Was it just the fact that Jesus fasted? Was it the fact that he fought the devil and defeated him? What made Jesus so different from us? Because this is the key. We're talking about steps to a sanctified life. This is the key to having a sanctified life, is to become like Jesus. Now, we're not going to go through all these texts, and I'm happy to send this to you, but I did a study of the book of John to try and figure out what made Jesus different. And I'm going to give you my summary of what made Jesus different. What was it that Jesus did? He said, I came to do my Father's will. He said He came to work the works of God. He said He came to speak His Father's words. But ultimately, He said He came to glorify the Father. Now, this is critical because if you want holiness, what I'm telling you that is that holiness is not just read your Bible, pray every day. Is that what you thought I was going to share with you? Read your Bible, pray every day. Of course those are important. But if those are works-based, they will not make you holy. Jesus' life was lived differently. What made Jesus holy? Look at this statement from Desire of Ages. Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? Quoting from Luke 2 verse 49. These words struck the keynote of his whole life and ministry. As the son of the most high and savior of the world, no earthly ties must hold him from his mission or influence his conduct. He must stand free 
to do the will of God. This is what holiness is, is being willing to do whatever God asks. Are you following? This lesson is also for... Hello out there. This lesson is also for us, right? The claims of God are paramount even to the ties of human relationship. Think about your relationships. No earthly attraction should turn our feet from the path in which He bids us walk. As Christ walked among men, He was guided step by step by the Father's will. Now some of us wanted to be like this, God, I'm struggling with sin, I don't know how I'm going to overcome it, and until I get rid of the sin, I can't follow you. And what I'm telling you is God is telling you, walk. How are you going to walk? Like Jesus walked. You just start walking. Does that make sense? You start out doing that. Christ Himself declared the Son of Man of Himself can do nothing. But what He seeth the fathers do, for whatsoever things He doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. How are we going to do holiness? Because our focus is on Christ. Our focus is on God. In the book Steps to Christ, there's this fascinating description about how, holy, about how we are to focus on Christ. It says that the devil distracts us to focus on ourselves. We start looking at our failures or our victories. And like the Pharisees, we either feel guilty or proud. Have you gone through that? So what I like to do, and I didn't have one to, uh, to demonstrate this this morning. Uh, they didn't want me to carry a broom onto the plane, but I normally have a broom. And what I do is... I have somebody come up and balance the broom on their fingertip. Any of you ever done this? So you balance the broom with fingertip, but here's the fascinating thing. The only way you can balance a broom on your fingertip is if you're looking at the head of the broom. If you look down at your hand, you cannot hold that broom up. It will fall over. Now here's the secret to holiness. While your focus is on God and His will for your life, and you are not looking at yourself, your life will remain in balance. But as soon as you look down at yourself and you begin to look at your imperfections or the way you're doing so well, then your life falls out of balance and you find that that holiness experience disappears. Holiness is something that belongs to God. Holiness is a byproduct of a relationship with God. You do not get holiness by a bunch of moral rules. You get holiness by entering into a relationship with God and being willing to surrender yourself entirely to the Father's will. Everyone follow that? If Jesus was so wholly dependent, declaring, I do nothing of myself, how much more should the human agencies depend upon God for how much? Constant instruction so that their lives might be the simple working out of God's will. Oh, that failing, erring mortals would be content to seek wisdom from God and be entirely what? Submissive in working out His directions, in exemplifying His character. The way to a holy character is by surrendering to God. It's by letting that Holy Spirit come into our lives. The Church of Christ is to represent His character. He says, I sanctify myself, I make myself holy, that they also might be Sanctified, the plan of salvation devised prior to the beginning of time expresses the love of Christ to man, the devotion of the Son to the Father's glory. And here's what it is. You lift up God into His high and holy place. You start focusing on who Christ is. You let your, your, your life be molded by Christ's life. You let yourself be submissive to His will. And as you surrender to a relationship with Him, 
as that Holy Spirit comes into your life and starts His cleaning out process, you will become holy. Does this make sense? Holiness is the byproduct of a relationship. And that's why the way to holiness is not by works, but by inviting the Holy Spirit into our lives. Christ the great teacher had an infinite variety of subjects from which to choose. But the one upon which he dwelt largely was the endowment of the Holy Spirit. Endowment means gift of the Holy Spirit. And notice what happens here. There is nothing that Satan fears so much as that the people of God clear the way by doing what? Removing every hindrance so that the Lord can do what? Pour out His Spirit upon a languishing church. That certainly describes our church today. And an impenitent congregation. If Satan had his way, there would never be another awakening, great or small, to the end of time. But we are not ignorant of his devices. It is possible to resist his power. Can you say amen? amen? The devil is not the victor. Christ is. When the way is prepared for the Spirit of God, the blessing, what? May come? No, will come. Satan can no more hinder a shower of blessing from descending upon God's people than he can close the windows of heaven that rain cannot come upon the earth. What I'm saying to the devil is it's time to get your umbrella because God is going to pour out His Holy Spirit. Can I have an amen? amen? The whole reason of what God is wanting to do, He says, I want a holy people. Enter into a relationship with me. Remove every hindrance. And I am going to pour out my special blessing upon you so that there will not be room enough to receive it. It is not because of any restriction on the part of God that the riches of His grace do not flow earthward to men. If the fulfillment of the promise is not seen as it might be, it is because the promise is not appreciated as it should be. If all were willing, all would be filled with the Holy Spirit. What I'm talking about today is a fundamentally different way of life. It's a fundamentally different way of thinking about your Christian experience. It is saying, I will not live life my way. I will put off my plans. I am going to open myself up to the Holy Spirit. When He says, here's a hindrance, here's something that's holding you back, I am going to get rid of it. Amen? I am not going to let that thing hold me back. And you can do it on your own. It requires God to come into you through the Holy Spirit and to make that happen. Can I have an amen? Amen. Wherever the need of the Holy Spirit is a matter little thought of, there is seen spiritual drought, spiritual darkness, spiritual declension and death. Whenever minor matters occupy the attention, isn't that us today? The divine power which is necessary for the growth and prosperity of the church and which would bring all other blessings in its train is lacking, though offered in infinite plenitude. That means without limit. Since this is the means by which we are to receive power, why do we not hunger and thirst for the gift of the Spirit? Why do we not talk of it, pray for it, and preach concerning it? For the what kind of baptism? Daily baptism of the Spirit. Every worker should offer his petition to God. The only way we can be sealed at the end of time is if the Holy Spirit is working in our lives. The critical steps towards holiness come out of this. To fill a right important positions of trust requires the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Only as they receive this baptism can men and women work the works of Christ and reveal what? Pure holy principles. You can't 
do it on your own. And so as I looked at Acts of the Apostles, this, there's about five pages on this, I recognized that she spoke, speaks about spirit baptism. And my view of spirit baptism was what I'd seen in Pentecostal churches. You know, the hallelujah, praise the Lord, you know, I'm full down. And I thought, is this what it is? And then I went back and I looked and it said it is not spiritual ecstasy. Instead, it is an entire what? Surrender of the will. It is living by every word. It is trusting God in trial. It is doing what? Relying on God. It is resting in His love. If we want the Holy Spirit experience, we have to rest in God's love. A couple of final quotes before we close. Unless the members of God's church today have a living connection with the source of all spiritual growth, they will not be ready for the time of reaping. Unless they keep their lamps trimmed and burning, they will fail of receiving added grace in times of special need. What does this mean? It means that if we're not receiving it now, it'll be too late then. You follow that? So here's my summary. Holiness is a biblical requirement. Would you agree? Secondly, holiness belongs to God alone. Would everyone agree? We receive holiness through a relationship with God. The only way to become holy is to live the entire life that Jesus lived, a life of surrender and a life of a daily baptism of the Spirit. Would you agree? And finally, God wants to fill us with His Holy Spirit so that we can be prepared for the latter rain. How is that going to take place? When we surrender our lives to God. There was a time in my life when I felt that God was absent. Ever had those moments? I prayed. My prayers were bouncing off the ceiling. I said, God, I, I, I don't feel you. I don't experience you. And yet I felt convicted. I needed to pray anyway. So as I'm kneeling by my bed one day, I said, God, what is it? Why is it that there's no connection here? And it was as if these two words came to mind. Entire surrender. Suddenly the tears started coming down my face. I said, God, it's true. I have not entirely surrendered myself to you. And I just, I just began to cry and say, God, is there anything? I am yours. I, I'm, I'm sorry for where I've been. And I realized that he was waiting for me to reach that moment. And I will admit that I'd been struggling with the sin in my life. And that was just weighing me down. And I said, God, you know what I realized? I can't fix it. I can't fix it. And as I did that, there was this peace that came down. Suddenly I felt as if the room was lighted up, as if God's presence was especially being poured out. Now, I didn't start speaking in tongues, but there was that sense of the Holy Spirit being poured into my life. Where are you today? Are you willing to let the Holy Spirit take your life and to seal you and finally one day to pour out His latter rain so that we can finish the work. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank You that as we've done this study on biblical holiness that You have taken us through this time to see that holiness is not so much what we do as an internal process that begins in our heart. We've seen that holiness is something that you give us. Holiness is a gift from you. And as we open our lives up to receive that gift, as we enter into a relationship with you, particularly on the Sabbath, but every other day too, 
may we sense a change in our lives. Right now, there are sins holding us back. On behalf of this group, Lord, I surrender our sins to you. And I pray for your Holy Spirit to come in and make us holy. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. I want to give a quick uh, advert to what's coming up. Uh, the next uh, session, I'm going to be speaking about sex and spirituality. The two are connected. Then uh, in the third session, we're going to be dealing with the media. If you've been struggling with video games and, and uh, movies and all of those things. And then the last session are some practical tips for how you go about getting victory over sin. God bless you. Have a wonderful time. And don't forget tomorrow, the, the ones on prayer as well. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.